Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is October 30th. It is Devil's Night uh, of 2014, and tonight our guest is uh, Jerry Otero. Uh, Mr. O, we are going to be talking about This Is Your Brain on Harm Reduction. Um, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are free of charge. Laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Jerry Otero, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Jerry? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks. What an honor to be on your show tonight, considering... Uh the guests who I uh, see have been on and have heard, I've been to company. Well, it's great to have you here, and it's great we finally made the technology work after uh, all the struggles we had this evening to connect, but everything's recording yeah. now. So it's all good. Uh, well, I want to start with a little bit. Um, you were working a while back with the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. They call themselves DrugFree.org now. And they were doing some things which were very surprising considering their past ads uh, in ancient times with the fried eggs and this is your brain on drugs and all that. Tell us what they were doing. Uh, well, um uh, they've actually remorphed again into partnership for drug-free kids. And they're, uh, I guess, uh, trying to drive a stake in the ground uh, to occupy some of the youth space and be a resource for parents. So one of the things that they did was uh, started a parent helpline, uh, which is manned by uh, professional substance abuse counselors, and uh, who parents uh, in trouble or with questions can call and speak to, uh, and, you know, and get some uh, objective advice on what to do. And uh, uh, harm reduction played a big, big, big uh, part in, in the actual um, application of, suggestions to tell people things that to do, harm reduction always seems to come up, even at a, at a, uh, at a, an organization like the partnership where you might think it would be an uneasy sort of, uh, match. Uh, it wasn't as difficult as you'd imagine though. Mm -hmm. And that's, that, that, that was one of the things that was happening. And it was actually quite a great service because, um, not only could a parent call in and speak to a professional, 30, 40, 50 minutes and get resources and get some ideas, um, get off the ledge a lot of times because we would uh, talk people off of the tough love approach and to what um, uh, has been called the kind love approach uh, in, in dealing with uh, kids who might be misusing and parents who are freaking out not knowing what to do about it. Uh, not only would parents be able to speak to a professional, uh, they also started a parent support network, which consisted of parents who have dealt with uh, a drug-abusing kid. I'll call them youngsters. because have got my case about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, the parent calls in and speaks to the professional, 
and then can actually speak to a trained parent peer specialist who is trained in a five-session protocol to teach the other parent craft techniques, which are, if you're not familiar with that, uh, with that acronym, stands for the Community Reinforcement Approach and Family Training, and it's a positive reinforcement approach to intervention, uh, the antithesis of the nagging, begging, and pleading. So a parent can actually get a, 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 a good amount of, uh, uh, if not clinical, quasi-clinical service from the partnership, and it's quite a good program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, was the, I was the assistant director for some time. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention in passing, we've done shows about craft in the past. We did one with Jeff, uh, oh, with, uh, let's see, it was Nicole Kosanke, but the Center for Emotional Motivation and Change, they have the book Beyond Addiction. We also had Bob Myers on some time ago. Uh, the nice thing about craft, the thing I really like best about craft is it is an evidence-based approach that was tested in clinical trials against an untreated control group. Uh, and it was shown to actually be effective, which so many things in the treatment world are not, are not tested. They're just, you know, people just made them up and said, well, they're great and we love them. <laughs> but this is. Well, it's, it's more, uh, much of the, uh, uh, there's a culture of recovery, right? Which mm-hmm. uh, is more rooted in, in that culture than it is in a practice. And I think mm-hmm. there's good reasons for that. I think throughout the fifties we saw that uh in the forties and fifties we saw the mainstream medical practices fail miserably at treating uh, uh alcoholism, at treating uh uh some of the addictions that people saw. And we saw some of the self help uh movements sort of evolve. We saw AA uh, members of the AA branch off to start sitting on, which was their own sort of closed community to help each other get off heroin. And we saw a proliferation of uh, self-help groups now, which uh, they have for just about every ailment that ails you, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there was, there's a reason why this thing is, you know, these things are taken as the truth. And I think that, that it's only now that we're beginning to see the medical world take addiction uh, much more seriously and looking at it as a health concern. Mm-hmm. Well, if we look in the in the fifties in that time, I mean, the medical community basically didn't treat it. They didn't do anything with it. They said, "Get out of my office." That's what they said. Right. Or, or they sent you to an asylum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but but um, so that's a very interesting resource for parents. And I would uh, suggest any parent who's listening to give a call if they ever need to speak to somebody uh, about uh, this issue. Uh, and you can reach them, uh, shall I give the number? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it's 855-DRUG-FREE. You can't forget that one. Okay. 855-DRUG-FREE. And I wanted to ask you something else, because uh, the first time I met you, I think we were talking about this issue of Narcan, Naloxone, the overdose reversal drug. And were was uh, DrugFree.org, were they going to be distributing that? I know they were very interested in it. I don't know about distributing it, but I do know that the Harm Reduction Coalition came by and gave the training, and about 20 of their staff went went over uh, to the uh, headquarters and got themselves their prescriptions and their kits. 
Um, uh, I don't know if, if they have plans to uh, distribute it in any kind of way, uh, but they're big proponents of it. In fact, they've uh, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, they're big. They're, they're big proponents of. Uh, uh, and there you have it. They're, they're big harm reduction proponents and don't even know it yet. <laughs> so they're definitely aware of it and definitely endorsing it and teaching people about it, which is really great. Well, so many parents, you know, parents, it's unnatural, a parent to bury a child and, and to know that there might have been a way that they could have saved them. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk, you know, as, as the assistant director of that talk on, I spoke to so many parents who had gone the tough love route and uh, would have... We report uh, uh, disastrous results. Oftentimes, uh, uh, things got worse. Uh, on a few occasions, uh, the youngster passed on, uh, and the parent really re regretted having gone that route, saying, I wish I would have known that there was something else I could have done. I wish I would have known that it wasn't just about uh, 12 steps or it wasn't just about Al-Anon and that there was actual support for parents. Mm -hmm. Well, the tough love has been an absolute disaster. It is much worse than it is worse than nothing. You know, Maya Zalovitz wrote a lot about this stuff. It is not the way to go. You know, That's right. Narcan, you know, we're getting the debate in the newspapers now, and in the media back and forth uh, is giving people Narcan, enabling them. Oh boy, that's the that's the first thing you want to do is shoot yourself up with Narcan and be dope sick. Well, first of all, you can't reverse your own overdose anyway. You know, because you're not at right, all. Right, um, right, right. Because you're comatose. You're comatose. You're not. You're not aware. Yeah. You don't know you've overdosed until you know. You don't know you're overdosed until you're dead. <laughs> Seriously. In fact, a lot of people. You know, I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, myth about um, uh, a heroin-induced sort of coma coming out of a heroin-induced state uh, with Narcan where where you come up and you're, because you're, you're completely in withdrawal at that moment. Mm -hmm. So you're not feeling all that happy about being brought back to life. No, not at all. I mean, people are, people are sick. They're, they're dope yeah. sick. People are dope sick. That's right. It's not, it's not a very pleasant feeling. So this is not something that people are going to seek for fun, but you know, in the worst case scenario where your friend is turning blue and you say, Oh boy, he's overdosing. You can give him a shot in Arcade and bring him back to can life. You, I, I, I couldn't even imagine that in my life I would see something like that, uh, and that it's been so um, it's been around for quite some time, and uh, um, is such has has been met with such resistance, uh, which is not so much true. It's not so true now. Uh, I mm -hmm. think that anyone who resists the idea is an idiot. Uh, but um, we're seeing much wider acceptance of it now, but it's taken so damn long. Mm -hmm. Well, I we guess have. The wheels move, move so slowly, though, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we have a lot of good groups that are now promoting Narcan. Um, things like GRASP, uh, that's grief recovery after substance passing. That's like right. Moms United Against the War on Drugs. There's a lot of parents now that are really promoting uh, Narcan because they know, you know, a lot of them, unfortunately, it's very sad that they have a child that uh, died of an overdose and they realize now that there's something that might possibly have saved them. Yeah. 
Could you imagine how a parent feels knowing that there would there might have been something that could have saved their child? Mm-hmm. That's why they're that's why they're becoming fierce advocates for it. Absolutely. And it, it's interesting because from there they're moving on into other areas where they're beginning to realize that uh, things like the war on drugs has caused them more harm than good, and uh, that the way drugs are regulated. Uh, cause almost, if not more harm sometimes in the drugs themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing. I mean, if we just look at history, um, if we look at from the start of the war on drugs, let's say the start of Nixon's war on drugs, because that's kind of the start of the modern war on drugs. I think it's 1972, if I recall. This is the 70s. Until today, uh, has addiction decreased or increased? It's increased gigantically. Has drug abuse and misdirection, uh, has the drug use increased? It's increased hugely. The, the war on drugs has done nothing to reduce... Not only, yeah. No, you're right. It's not only, it's not only increased, it, it's no myth that heroin on the streets of New York today is more plentiful, uh, more potent, and cheaper than it's ever been. Even back in the heyday, and you know, in the days of Superfly, mm-hmm, uh, for instance, right? Uh, who, who was a big junk dealer up in Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, or in our depiction depiction of a big junk dealer up in Harlem, heroin on the street was four to six, maybe eight percent, and that was considered a good bag. Mm-hmm. Heroin on the street today is forty percent pure. That's pretty. That's a pretty big jump, and it's more available and it's less uh, expensive. And that's not a myth. I know that I read an article recently that that was uh, propaganda, some kind of propaganda. But that's true, and that's a result of the drug war. It's, well, that's a result also of our involvement in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where much of our heroin problem has to do with the, the, the blowback from our involvement there, I think. What do you think? I think that's part of it. I mean, everything we have done, we've done wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, we can go and look at uh, England, the British model, before uh, they uh, imported our drug war. Uh, the doctors, the MDs in uh, Great Britain were able to prescribe heroin to people with addictions. Very right. uh, Yeah. The number of people with the heroin addiction was very low, and it was not increasing until they they imported the drug war and uh, made this practice illegal. Suddenly, it was very profitable to drug dealers to get new people hooked on heroin because then they would have a regular customer. Before, if you got somebody hooked, then they would just go to their doctor and get it for free. That's right. But, you know, you, you, now you're talking... Now you're talking um, uh, heroin maintenance, which is about as bad a word as harm reduction used to be. <laughs> yeah, but it's very, <laughs> yeah, but it's very successful, and people Absolutely. don't people don't understand it. You know, uh, you don't start putting people on heroin maintenance immediately. You say, you, if somebody comes in, you say, "Do you want to try methadone first? You try them with methadone." Right or buprenorphine first, and a lot of people succeed with methadone, a lot of people succeed with buprenorphine, and then the the numbers, the ones that are left over that don't succeed, then they say, do you want to try the heroin-assisted treatment? And right. 
you know, it stops people from having to buy it illegally on the street. They don't have to commit crimes to make money to get the drugs. You know, it it has wonderful effects when it's put in. They have they have they have a safe injection site. Mm -hmm. So, but that's pretty radical. These are pretty radical ideas. what I should mention is I am no longer with the partnership. I am now with Drug Policy Alliance, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know that we're we're totally for uh, those types of interventions. And I personally have always been. Uh, so I would I would get on board right away. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. What is your position at the Drug Policy Alliance, and what are you? What kind of work do you do there? Well, you know, it's really my dream job. Uh, Kenneth, I wished it into existence about a year and a half ago, networking with the staff at DPA while I was over at the partnership. My, my official title is uh, Youth Policy Manager. And what I do is I um, help DPA deepen their youth positions um, uh, because nobody wants, it's one thing to want to, de- uh, to uh, legalize or uh, decriminalize drugs. Uh, but nobody, and certainly no parent, and half of us over at DPA are parents, nobody wants our kids to be messing around until they're old enough to make informed decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really working in the youth space to broaden out DPA's involvement in that space, understanding that we have a great responsibility to youth uh, being who we are and what we do. That mm-hmm. there's there's a big there's a big gap in what we do uh, because we we haven't uh, had uh, uh, the youth position filled for some time, but um, we have a, a a a wealth of literature that we've uh, published. Marsha Rosenbaum has published the Safety First booklet, which is a really great way for parents to learn how to have a conversation about drugs with their kids without freaking out, you know, but know when to step it up, how mm-hmm. to not confront them, how to have a conversation and not a confrontation, uh, but mostly also how to be honest and how to give parents, sort of empower parents to be courageous enough to tell their kids the truth about drugs. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in ways that respects young people's intelligence and gives them props, you know, for being able to make decisions based on their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And by and large, I find that that's, that's true. If you give kids uh, the, uh, the, the right information and you, you support them in the right ways, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what goes on in these drug prevention programs is that it teaches the kids, that there's something that they have to learn to resist the allure of drugs. And I think that that's kind of irresponsible because that's kind of putting it on the kid. And where it really should be responsibility for it lies, obviously, is with families, but with communities. And Mm -hmm. communities need to be able to raise ethical, engaged, socially conscious youth constituents. Uh, and you may not have a drug-free world. And kids may smoke a little dope, and they may pop a molly, and they may do all the things that kids do. But these are kids um, 
are who are going to be less vulnerable to developing problematic use later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? does that make sense? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very unrealistic to expect that uh, all kids are going to wait till their twenty-first birthday to uh, try their first joint, their first cigarette, their you know their first uh, hit of uh, ecstasy, whatever it is, their first drink. That's yeah, right. Kids are not going to all wait till their twenty-first birthday. They're going to they're going to experiment. They're going to try, but uh, you know, the thing is, can you encourage them? To you know, ratchet it down. Don't go all hog wild. You know, you know. If you how are, about, gonna... how about a how about a radical idea of teaching kids moderation? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mod- modeling moderation, you know, uh, modeling and giving them the tools like Narcan <laughs> if they need it. Letting them know about Good Samaritan laws and knowing, letting them know that if they're in trouble, they can call home and not get in more trouble. Mm-hmm. Right, these are things that, that parents can be doing, uh, but unfortunately, you know, you buy, you know, you, too often do they buy into the, the rhetoric and the hype because there's so many opposing, there's so many opposing views, and the naysayers uh, always, always use the kids as hostage, you know, and in the chorus of naysayers, what about the kids? What about the kids? Mm-hmm. Well, the truth of the matter is. And about half of the kids who go to school report using something by the time they're a senior. So how the hell could we not be providing them with safety information? Exactly. Exactly. It's irresponsible. It's reckless to not do that. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the worst problems, you know, well, we know that uh, prescription painkillers are getting very popular these days with young people. Um, and if you do use them daily, um, there's a good chance of uh, addiction. You know, th- there's something you have to be very cautious with. But, you know, how many kids could, could, if they got addicted, could go to their parents and say, I got addicted. I didn't want to, but, you know, they, they, they think they're going to get screamed no, at. Of course they would. One of the, um, again, going back to the drug war without belaboring the point, but one of the ways that the drug war has hurt our children is that they're not willing to go to any adult to talk to them about a drug uh, problem they may be having because we haven't taught them how to handle a problem if it arises because we think if we're teaching that, we're being permissive. Mm-hmm. You know, Stanton Peel, Stanton Peel has a great book called Addiction Proof Your Child mm-hmm. where <laughs> being a harm reductionist the person himself, you know, parents often think, uh, that uh, he might be permissive or that we as harm reductionists might be permissive. But anyone who ever read his book, especially chapters 5 and 8, would know that he holds the bar really high for children, and he has high hopes and high expectations for them. And that's what kids need mm-hmm. from the adults around them. They, they need to be, to be, to be, uh, to be uh, handheld, of course, but we need to hold the bar high for them. And and um, uh, part of that is by giving them the information they need to stay safe. They can use it. They'll and they will use it. Um, you know, I work I work with a, a, a youth group in my in my sideline called Creative Youth Think. We do murals and other kinds of public art projects. And I've got a lot. Of, I've got a couple of kids who smoke dope, but I've got a lot of kids in the uh, or in, you know in the group 
and we're talking ages 15 to 22, who don't use anything um, by choice. Uh, and many, I have a, a couple couples in the group who not only don't use drugs of any sort, um, have, have decided not to have sex either. And I don't know where they got this from, but these are choices they made. And, and youngsters today will make the choices that seem to benefit them the most if they have the right information uh, and not, you know, uh, misleading, misstated, over-exaggerated propaganda. Yeah, if you don't show them pictures of a frying pan and an egg and say, this is your brain on drugs. Well, imagine, imagine if, if drug education, or no, no, let's go better than that. Imagine if driver's education were nothing more than pictures of highway accidents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No one would ever learn to drive. Yeah. And that's, what's happening. that's the same thing that's, that's what's happening with our youngsters today, is that, is that they're not learning how to drive. Uh, and part of the reality of today's world is that they have to drive through a world where drugs do exist. Do I use it? Do I not use it? Which one do I use? How much do I use? What do I mix? Should I mix? Should I be, even be doing this? These are things kids have the capability of asking themselves all those questions. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it's a great analogy. Driving is a great analogy. And, you know, there's one way to avoid the problems with driving is abstinence. You don't have to drive. <laughs> That's right, but then we wouldn't get anywhere. Well, right? you, could, you could ride the train instead. You could ride the subway. You could take a taxi. Hello, you could take hello. a bus. You don't have to drive. You could abstain from the car. Um, and that's certain. Actually, that's what I do. As I abstain from driving. And I don't right. have any problems with the automobile accidents or parking tickets or anything. Right. So maybe abstinence in some ways, um, you know, is, a, is, is definitely a worthwhile goal. Well, it works for some but people. Should, but, but it shouldn't be forced on anybody. No, it's not going to work for everybody. But for some people, they prefer that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm okay with that. I have no problem. My best friend, you know, it's so funny. I mean, this is going to sound so cliche. But, but literally, my best friend is an abstinent person and been in AA for 25 years. We get along great. That's a good point. I was going to ask a little bit about your personal history. Were you, <laughs> were you ever involved in 12-step programs? What brought you to be working with drug I, users? You know, I, yeah. I, I, I really was. I'll tell you, I had, without getting into all the details, I had uh, a pretty uh, fucked up drug experience uh, in my 20s. I was pretty much fucked up in my 20s. Uh, got myself together in my 30s, and I did the AA thing for 10 years. I was absolutely abstinent for 10 years. I uh, went to meetings and I did all that, and then I realized that I was really, like, I was really just a very unhappy, um, I was an unhappy camper, and I figured I didn't do all this work to get my life together to uh, be miserable. So I, so I, um, so I stopped being an abstinent person and uh, began, to, began to think about recovery in a much different way, which is why I loved your workshop um, at the HRC conference, uh, because I think that recovery really needs to be defined 
by the person because you're the one who has to develop your relationship with it, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if if it's something that's carved out for you, pre-conceived for you, uh, 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 prefabricated for you, all you got to do is fit in. Well, then you just you just comply with a set of rules and regulations. You're not mm-hmm. really recovering from anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, the, uh, so I take my drink every now and then. Uh, but still consider myself a recovering person mm-hmm. because I'm nothing what I was 25 years ago. Do you like, even, go ahead. Do you like the term recovering or do you like the term recovered? I like the term recovered. I like the term recovered. I do you? too. I do too. Yeah. I like recovered. Yeah, you know, I like I'm done yeah. with that. I'm done with that past off. It's not something that I'm fighting anymore. I don't like to do that anymore, so I don't do that anymore. Well, imagine imagine what you do to youngsters by forcing them into these programs that teach them the disease model and that teach them the only way out for them is through these programs, 12-step programs particularly, and uh, that they're going to have to do it for their whole life and mm. never, ever, 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 ever have a drink. Mm. Not a drop of alcohol should pass these lips. Mm. And you do that with kids who, ter- who change identities, like you and I might change our clothes, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of a crime to, to really uh, pigeonhole kids into um, uh, an addict, uh, an addicted, you know, the addict mentality that they have the disease of addiction and they need to uh, arrest it um, and, you know, get a reprieve from it on a daily basis by making meetings. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's terrible. Plus the kind of treatment that they put the kids through is nothing more than watered down, twelve, you know, 12-step 101. It, it sort of teaches them how to go to that first meeting? Well, there's, there's, a, couple, there's a couple really there's a couple really bizarre things about it, uh, and the one that just uh, really bothers me is the the way they tell people that you are just you are just one drink away from relapse or just one drug away from relapse, and your uh, your disease is still progressing even though you're abstaining. And your disease is out doing push-ups in the parking lot, and you're getting worse right. even though you're abstaining. And, uh, you know, people that quit drugs or alcohol on their own or moderate on their own, uh, they don't they don't feel that way. You know, after a while, yeah, I've quit cigarettes for five, six, six years now. You know, I don't think about smoking cigarettes ever anymore. Right. I, I've I, I must confess, I hadn't smoked for about 20 years. I just I, I just uh, had a couple of smokes the other day. <clears throat> but I'll stay away from those. Yeah, I, I quit 20 years ago uh, when my son was born. Uh, had smoked two, two packs a day for forever. And, I mean, I was in my 30s. It wasn't like I was an old, old man by then. But it was, a, it was a tough habit to kick until I had some intrinsic motivation to do it. You know, my wife was getting sick. My son was going to get – my son was, born, was being born – and she was getting sick from the smoke. And I just quit. And that was that. I was done with it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't feel like I'm one cigarette away from a re-addiction, you know. In fact, no, no, no. Right. I had two I had two cigars in the past two years because I and they because I'm a moderate cigar smoker. My my max is one a week, right. but I didn't have much time, so I only made two cigars in two years. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you got some catchy others then. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that I think the whole line, the whole notion that 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 you can't use any intoxicating substance ever again in your whole life because you've been this this sick person is just such a terrible thing to tell people. And it's so unrealistic. And and there's no data that backs it up. I did, I really dug in when I was getting ready for my presentation. That was one of the areas I was really interested in was can uh, ex-narcotic addicts, people previously dependent mm-hmm. on narcotics, can they That's drink right. again? Can they drink well, safely? Let me put that, that, that to bed. Because you're speaking to an ex-opiate addict who drinks. Mm-hmm. And the last thing in the world that I would ever do today is pick up heroin or pick up any kind of opiate. Um, unless I need to with a doctor or whatever under some guidance. And I haven't had to have I haven't had that that that, that happen yet, so I'll cross that bridge when I get there. But uh, I you know I have uh, a couple of times a week I drink socially and have no desire. Uh, it, it has not made me go to anything else. <laughs> uh, all the stories that impair your judgment kind of leads you to your drug choice. Nonsense. All of it's nonsense. When I looked at the research, well, it's really interesting. The therapeutic communities in the 60s, uh, before you graduated, one of the last things you did before you graduated was you got drinking privileges. That's so, right. And, and you were taken out by your older peers. Yes. And you were supposed to learn to and drink like told- a gentleman. Yes, exactly. because, because the old TC model was a social problem model. It was never a spiritual moral model. Um, uh, they didn't include 12-step treatment until 12-step treatment became uh, 12-step uh, uh, meetings became so big that it was the only aftercare service that they could provide their patients or the community residents. But they taught people to drink, absolutely, because they thought it was a social problem. And you just never learned how to drink right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, in addition to this, a couple of the executives, uh, you know, they were graduates of the TCs. They became, they started running their own. A, a couple of them turned into big drunks. And because yes, of and this anecdotal evidence of a couple people, they said, you know, they decided, well, no one can ever drink again if they've uh, been an ex-heroin addict. You know, do you know that my aunt was one of the first directors of Phoenix House? Oh, I didn't know that. That's right. Beatrice Myers. She was one of the directors of the Coney Island facility. She was actually one of the first patients on the Kentucky farm when they were having the methadone trials. Mm-hmm. So it runs in my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, and, um, and I had my own experience many, many years ago. In uh, in a TC as well, 
uh, long after they had drinking. But believe me, they had no drinking privileges by when I got there. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, they've uh, be, they've uh, become very twelve step these days. They uh, like to send everybody to meetings. That's all they do is send everybody to meetings. And on your itinerary for the weekend, uh, you're supposed to, which is a good thing. I think it's a great tool. Like by Wednesday, you're supposed to kind of have your plan for the weekend, what you're going to do, you know, um, with the understanding that that failing to plan is uh, planning to fail, right? So, which doesn't make a terrible, uh, I think, that, I think that's, that's good to start to look ahead, have some, some mindfulness and some thoughts about what I'm going to do and so on and so forth. Anyway, long story short is if you don't include a meeting each day, your itinerary doesn't get approved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so you asked me about what kind of work I'm doing at DCA. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know... It's a variety of work uh, um, that occupies the youth space, you know, so we're going to um, really try to educate our youth with honest materials. We're really going to try to um, rely upon them to make the best decisions for themselves once given that information. Uh, we're going to help parents not to freak out and know how to make a distinction between experimentation and misuse, that's one of the big problems with the prevention world these days, is that there's absolutely no, all use is abuse. And mm -hmm. that's not true. And mm -hmm. kids know that. Mm -hmm. In fact, in fact, <clears throat> kids know already uh, that there's such a thing as moderate pot smoking. Mm -hmm. Because they see their parents moderately drink. So if, if they put two of them together and say, if you can moderately drink, you got to be able to moderately do this other thing. And we come up with, with the craziest campaigns. Um, <laughs> recently, you think you think the fried egg was something. Uh, recently, in Colorado, Governor Hickenlooper approved a two million dollar expenditure on a program pushing out a slogan that went, "Don't be a lab rat." What that was meant to suggest was mm -hmm. that there's some research that's inconclusive. Kids don't, you know, don't take a chance. All right, that's not a bad message. But the way they uh, they push the message out is they installed, they spent $2 million installing these human-sized rat cages outfitted with a hamster bottle. Oh, it's very funny with the hands. It was outfitted with a hamster bottle. And um, uh, with placards of propaganda on it. Um, with the expectation that that was going to do something to prevent kids from using. Immediately, the, uh, the kids, students started using the cages as an Instagram selfie meme, puffing away in the cage. <laughs> <laughs> and that became a big thing. The whole campaign down the drain. What a waste of money. Well, the whole thing is ridiculous, um, you know, because... You know, there's a famous study by Bruce Alexander. We had him on the show way back when, about three years ago when we were starting, and talk about the rat park experiment. You know, when you put rats in cages with absolutely nothing to do except do drugs, and they, they're right. so confined they can't even really move around, you know, of course they're going to do drugs all the time. 
you take the same rats, you put them in a park setting where they have leaves to play with, they have other rats to have sex with, they run around and act like normal rats, and you put drugs in, in that mix, and they ignore the drugs. They just they take a little bit, and they say, well, this isn't very interesting. Let's go fuck that other rat, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. And you know what? I don't want to liken kids to rats, but... In very much the same way, when we hold youngsters in a particular way, both through family and through community, and we give them things that feel good, like leafy park, you know, if we give them cracked parks and, and, and broken down places to live and stressful people <clears throat> surrounding them, what makes us think they're not going to go down another path? Uh, than if they were to be uh, provided with some some nicer n- n- uh, nicer things and 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 more uh, the words escaping me. There's something about uh, how their dependency needs are being met. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's yes. very element. That's very elemental. And I think that that much of drug prevention, for instance, needs to occur on a community level where communities are able to support kids in that way, too. It's not just on parents. It's not just on kids. It's yeah. not just learning refusal skills, right? It's learning mm-hmm. how to be so socially engaged. It's learning what Stanton might call mindfulness, right, in, mm-hmm. in, some, in, in his, his new book. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, you'd, yeah. mentioned, uh, uh, you'd mentioned Maya Zolovitz earlier, and it's from her that I took the, uh, the kind love versus the tough love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was the title of her article when she interview, interviewed uh, Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. Well, we are running out of time now. Oh, my gosh. So I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I thank you for inviting me, Kenneth. This was great. It was great to see you at the HRC conference and, and hear you speak. Great to be on your show. Um, thanks so much. Okay, and everyone will see you next week. Our guest will be Andrew Meacham, who wrote a book called Selling Serenity, which talks about the big business of uh, drug treatment and recovery of the 90s. And we'll see you all then.